This episode of the Weekly Standard Podcast is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips with more than 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, better living, and more. The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming or DVD and CD. Best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams. And now, for a limited time only... The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of up to 80% off the original price of selected courses, including the decisive battles of world history. For this limited time 80% offer, go to thegreatcourses.com slash WS to find out more. That's thegreatcourses.com slash WS. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Mr. and Mrs. North America and all the ships at sea. This is Philip Terzian. I'm the literary editor of the Weekly Standard, and this is my weekly podcast about the books and arts section of the Weekly Standard. And this week we're talking about the April 20th, 2015 edition of the magazine. And the lead piece in the books and arts section is a review uh, by Dominic Green of a book entitled They Can Live in the Desert But Nowhere Else, A History of the Armenian Genocide by Ronald Grigor Suni, which comes from Princeton University Press. Um, This uh, coming week will be the centennial uh, of the uh, Armenian Genocide, and um, there's been a fair amount of attention um, um, attached to the subject and observances and so on, and... um, there's a kind of consensus that I reached myself, I guess, that uh, this book from Princeton is probably the best current account of the genocide that we have on hand. It talks about the events um, uh, surrounding the killing of the 1.5 million Armenians uh, within the Ottoman Empire around about 1915 and thereafter, and the the, uh, the forced marches and deportations um, that required uh, hundreds of thousands of them to cross the <clears throat> desert, uh, which resulted in the death of many, as well as the outright killing of of, of many as well. Um, w- one of the interesting things about the Armenian genocide, I should point out, well, there are two things. One is that um, it, it is often talked about in relation to the First World War, and the centennial of the genocide is this year, um, since 1915, was the uh, what one might call the height of it. But in fact, the Ottoman uh, Turks had been massacring um, Armenians for a good quarter century prior to that, as well as other um, uh, Christian minorities within the Ottoman Empire. Um, the massacres of the Armenians had attracted the attention of the world in the 1890s. Uh, Lord Bryce and William Gladstone in England uh, were very prominent uh, people speaking out against it. Of some interest is during the during the First World War, when the genocide was at its crescendo, one of the main voices um, calling attention uh, to it uh, to the world was our, the American ambassador um, to the Ottoman Empire, um, uh, Henry Morgenthau, whose son, of course, later was the uh, uh, Secretary of the Treasury in uh, Franklin Roosevelt's administration. Um, the other aspect, of course, is that the Turkish government has never really come to terms with uh, its uh, complicity in the genocide or the fact that the genocide even exists. Um, 
Um, there really is no particular debate among historians about all this, and the evidence is is um, uh, quite conclusive, uh, touching even my own family, for example. But the Turks, for whatever reason, simply can't come to terms with it and, and have been on a, a global campaign to deny the facts of the genocide for many years now and are now pretty much isolated in that denial. But nevertheless, it persists. Anyhow, um, this book by Ronald uh, Sunni is a, uh, it's entitled They Can Live in the Desert But Nowhere Else, which is in quotation marks, a statement from an Ottoman official, um, seems to be the, the best of the current crop of accounts of the subject. And the, the essay by Dominic Green, um, which I've titled A Great Calamity, which is uh, based on the on the Armenian phrase Metsiegen, uh, which means the great calamity, which is, I guess, sort of the Armenian equivalent of the Holocaust in that sense, is a term that they use to describe the genocide. Um, uh, anyway, it's a, it's an interesting read. I think it's a good summary of the of the history and the facts and the political uh, uh, problems surrounding the Armenian genocide, and I think will be of interest to our readers, especially since um, Turkey seems to be falling ever deeper into a kind of Islamist uh, uh, status, and uh, which complicates discussions of this subject even more. That is followed by a piece by Tema Ehrenfeld, a review of two books about the brain, Great Myths of the Brain by Christian Jarrett, and The Wandering Mind, What the Brain Does When You're Not Looking by Michael Corballus. Um, I think writing <laughs> writing about the brain is, uh, I, th I think the human brain is wired to enjoy reading about the brain and books that describe uh, both brain function and the mind are uh, of endless fascination, especially as they're based on, on uh, uh, research in neurology, which seems to proceed apace and is usually renders books um, obsolete uh, almost upon publication. But these two are, are kind of interesting. One is a, a discussion about the the myths of, of, of brain function over time um, that have arisen and no doubt still exist. And The Wandering Mind is a little bit about the human tendency to, uh, which sometimes we notice when we're reading things we're not all that interested in. You can be, you can, your brain can be functioning, you can appear to be doing something, but uh, after a minute or two, you realize you, you, you've, you've been drawing an essential blank. It's an interesting, it's an interesting uh, uh, disquisition on a kind of interesting and amusing aspect of brain function. And Tema Ehrenfeld explains it very entertainingly in, in her piece. That is followed by a, a review by William Pritchard, who is a um, um, very distinguished literary critic, longtime professor of English at Amherst, um, of a, a, a memoir, Why Not Say What Happened, A Sentimental Education by Morris Dickstein. Morris Dickstein is a, a longtime um, a professor of English at the City University of, uh, the City University of New York Graduate Center, and um, this book is a, uh, a, um, a memoir, essentially, of Dickstein's uh, growing up in New York and and his coming of age uh, intellectually somewhat along the lines of of um, Alfred Kazan's um, A Walker in the City or Norman Podhoretz's Making It, um, although 
Dickstein is himself, like Kazin on the left-hand side of the political uh, sphere rather than the right. Um, it's an interesting book, and Pritchard has some interesting observations about um, not just Dickstein's own um, uh, history, um, but also the the life of the, lit the life of the literary mind uh, in the second half of the twentieth century. Um, that is followed by a piece by Michael Nelson of a an interesting book um, that has gotten some attention um, by Ben Yagoda. It's entitled "The B Side: The Death of Tin Pan Alley and the Re Rebirth of the Great American Song." Um, I was saying to a colleague the other day that one thing that intrigues me is that um, when you look at newspaper headlines nowadays that that um, include allusions or plays on um, uh, either the titles or lyrics from popular songs, uh, you can tell that, that America's newspapers are now being written and edited by baby boomers because the musical references are almost entirely um, uh, rock or variations thereof, um, allusions to the music of uh, Cole Porter or the Gershwin brothers or Rogers and Hart or Jerome Kern and the other people who were writing American popular music between roughly between um, World War One and and I guess the end of World War Two or thereabouts are, are now almost largely disappeared from pop culture in that sense. Um, and indeed, I mean, I happen to think that the age of Porter and Gershwin and Kern and Dorothy Fields and uh, Rogers and Hart and, and the others was kind of the golden age of American uh, popular song. Um, but uh, like all golden ages, it uh, fell into a kind of lead period. And by the time of the 1950s, most of these um, people were at the end of their careers and um, weren't writing so much. And, of course, by the mid-50s and late-50s, you had the rock and roll revolution, which pretty much swept them off the charts forevermore. But um, in the decades since, there's been a kind of rebirth of appreciation of the so-called Great American Song book. If you go to New York for the weekend, you'll find any number of hotel uh, bars or nightclubs where someone is um, playing the piano and someone else is singing songs from the from the songbook. And there have, of course, been um, revivals on Broadway that use these songs. And, and then, of course, there are present-day songwriters, I suppose Stephen Sondheim notably, who, who got their start at the tail end of the golden age of American songwriting. So anyway, um, Ben Yagoda's book is, it tells us all about the history of that era, and also um, it's the, the fortunes of the music since then. Um, it's a good read, and especially so because Michael Nelson, um, uh, as always, um, we tell the story in succinct and almost equally intriguing fashion. Uh, John Patoritz's movie review this week is of the new movie from Ben Stiller entitled While We're Young, which John, um, I will uh, say only that John seems to like the movie, and as always, his explanation for um, what he thinks about it is almost as entertaining, perhaps in some ways more entertaining, certainly more interesting than the movie itself. So I commend that to you, and I thank you very much for joining me for this podcast and look forward to talking to you about next week's issue. Thank you so much. <laughs>